The scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, and verses 43 through 48. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me read another couple of verses from Matthew's gospel, this time from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. And then Psalm 133 verse 1, how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. This morning, I'm going to speak a song to you. Have no fear, I'm not going to try to sing it. It's a song, though, that some of you may know, not all of you, but some of you may know the tune. It goes back to 1960, and it's by Neil Sedaka, and it goes like this. Don't take your love away from me. Can you hum the tune? Maybe you know it uh, in the background there. Don't you ever leave my heart in misery. If you go, then I'll be blue, because breaking up is hard to do. They say that breaking up is hard to do. Now I know. I know it's true. Don't say that this is the end. Instead of breaking up, I wish that we were making up again. I beg of you, don't say goodbye. Can't we give our love another try? Come on, baby, let's start anew. Because breaking up is hard to do. I think we all know what Neil Sadaka meant when he said breaking up is hard to do. A lot of pain involved in that. But of course... Actually, breaking up is common as dirt in the world in which we live, and Carol King might reply by saying, it's too late, baby, it's too late. Something inside has died, and I can't hide, and I just can't fake it. And then she goes, oh, no, 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 no. 
So that's the truth in reality, breaking up all too common, painful, yes, but all too common, and in fact, really in our day and age, quite easy to do while making up, ah, that's different. Making up is what's really hard to do. But that's God's calling. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bow before you in a broken world, in a world in which our relationship with you is perhaps not what it ought to be and with others too. Come, grant to us a word today that will bring your healing power into our lives and through us into the lives of others. Hear this our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that breaking up broken relationships is a major source of pain within our world, not only between lovers, of course, but between family members, friends, and colleagues, between people of different nations, cultures, races, classes, between people of different political persuasions, we all know that, between members within churches and between congregations and churches and denominations, and ultimately between us and God. And this week and next, in the context of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is our sermon series at the moment, I want to talk about the extent of the issue of broken relationships as we find it in Scripture, and that's reflective of the world in which we live. And I want to speak as well about the practice of forgiveness, which is what I'm going to be speaking about next week, the practice of forgiveness next week. And then also... God's passion, God's passion for reconciliation, for making up, and the cost of that passion for God, and the fact that God wants that passion to be our passion as well. He sets the example that we are to follow. But first of all, let me begin with the size and the prevalence of the issue in the pages of Scripture and paint a picture of how common breaking up, how easy it is to do. All you have to do is go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the first few chapters of the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They have everything that they need, and yet their relationship is broken up. When they break up their relationship with God, disobey God, God gives them the fruit of all the trees in the garden except for one, and they just don't want to listen to God. And they don't listen to God. And everything spirals down. Their relationship with God is broken. Their relationship with each other is broken. They speak against each other. Things are not what they ought to be, even though they have absolutely everything. And this dribbles down to their family as well. Not long after, they break up with God and they have a tiff with each other. Sibling rivalry and deep jealousy creep into the picture. Their two sons' relationship is torn apart. Brothers Cain and Abel. Relationship torn apart, leading to the death of Abel. In fact, sibling rivalry is a significant theme in the pages of Scripture, not only with brothers Cain and Abel, but if you go now from Genesis 4 to the middle of Genesis, chapters 25, 26, you come to the story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And here it's the jealousy of the younger brother against the older brother and the rights that the older brother has, leading not to murder but to deceit and to lies and to theft, the theft, as it were, of a birthright. And that breaks up the whole family. In fact, Jacob, the younger brother who has done this, has to flee for his life, and he's gone. He's in exile for at least 
a couple of decades. And then we move further down in time, and you come to the end of the book of Genesis, and the story of Joseph and his brothers, and how Joseph alienates his brothers, boasting about the things that happened to him. He's clearly his father's favorite. His brothers can't stand him, and they decide to solve the problem by getting rid of him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. And that creates turmoil in the family, which lasts once again decade after decade in that family. The brokenness continues. And then 400 years later, on the way out of Egypt, there's jealousy in the family of Moses. Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, are jealous of him because he's the one, it seems, at the focal point of God's attention. And because as well, and this is interesting, because he marries a woman from Ethiopia, perhaps one of the first racial issues that appears clearly in the pages of Scripture. And Jesus picks up on this theme, this repeated theme of sibling rivalry, when he tells his story that we know of as the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. It's about two brothers. The younger one takes the inheritance of his father when his father is still alive. It's as if he wishes his father were dead. I wish you were dead so I can get your money. And the father gives him the money. He goes off. He squanders it. Then he comes back home again. And the father remarkably is glad, joyful to see him. But who is not joyful to see him? Well, his older brother. His older brother just can't stand the thought of this brother coming back. There is dismay and there is contempt. There is still a rift in the family caused by that rift some time before. The theme of breakups and rifts among siblings is common in Scripture, but there are also other breakups and rifts in Scripture as well. One of them we know of is caused by the love of power, the power of King Saul, the first king of ancient Israel, against his young protege, a young person by the name of David, who happens to be a courageous warrior, and he puts to death the great enemy of God's people, the giant Goliath, and he begins to fight Israel's battles, and he is successful so that people sing songs about him. Saul has slayed his thousands, David has slayed his tens of thousands, and King Saul is jealous that David is a threat to his power, a threat to his throne. And the relationship which once was strong falls, falls apart. And later, the saddest breakup of them all in David's life, caused by David, the adultery that he commits with Bathsheba. So there's power and there's sex and there's faithlessness all involved in the breakup of relationships in the pages of Scripture. Adultery with Bathsheba leading to the breakup of her marriage with her husband Uriah and then to his death which David plots and schemes for and actually happens in time. And then that too spirals down like the Garden of Eden story to the rest of his family, which is now in turmoil and in particular manifests itself in the rebellion of his son Absalom against him, leading in the end to the death of his son Absalom himself. So this storyline in the pages of Scripture, this unpleasant storyline, this all too easy storyline of breaking up is persistent. And it paints a picture that we ourselves know all too well and painfully in society, places of work, in our families, wherever it may be. It's a picture, though, that God himself seeks to resist. All too easy as it is for us, it's a picture that God himself seeks to resist and calls us wherever possible 
to reverse the trend and instead of being breakers up, to be makers up, hard as it is. And it is hard, but it's what God calls us to do. And it's what God does first. So that when God calls us to do it, to be a maker up and not a breaker up, it is in fact because this is who God is. This is who God is. And we see this in our passage of Scripture today. When Jesus calls us, in a passage which Martin Luther King Jr. loved to preach on, when he calls us not to hate our enemies, dividing ourselves from them for whatever reason, but to love our enemies, those with whom we have no relationship, a broken relationship, a difficult relationship, whatever it may be. And why are we to do this? Jesus says, why are we to do this? Because God does this first. This is who God is. Listen again to these words. You've heard it said, says Jesus, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't be breakers up, be makers up. Why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven, so you may bear a family resemblance to God. For, says Jesus, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He looks at nature, looks at creation, and says, wow, God is a source of blessing to all kinds of people and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God continues, in other words, to give the life-giving resources that people need even to those who ignore God or fight against God, deny God in one way, shape, or form. God gives those things not only to those who love him, but to those who hate him as well. And this ongoing permanent action of God to bless those who ignore him or despise him or whatever they do with him, with whom there is a broken relationship, this ongoing action of God is not cheap or easy. We see this most clearly in the life and in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death for us. Spelled out most clearly, I think, in a couple of passages written by the Apostle Paul in his letters to the church in Rome and then to the church in Corinth. In Romans chapter 5, we read this, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in a state of broken relatedness to God, before we made any kind of move to God, while we were yet sinners, God entered this world, Christmas story, and then died for us, the Good Friday story. And then he lives for us, says the Apostle Paul. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, we'll be, we'll be saved by his life, by his resurrection, the Easter story. He lives for us so that our relationship with him, no matter what the cost, the price, can be healed and restored. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, he picks up on this theme of the costly death of making up, of Jesus for making up, when he says Christ died for all, all kinds of people, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves in isolation and brokenness, but for him who died and was raised for them in relationship with God. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, to bring people back to God and to bring people together. The ministry of reconciliation, that is, says Paul, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message 
of reconciliation. So this is who God is. And this is the cost, the lengths to which God will go in order to be a maker-up and not a breaker-up. Great personal cost. For those whose fault it is to bring us back again to God. This is to be our passion as well because this is who God is. Makers up, not breakers up. But how are we to do this? Well, in our passage of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us what I'd call the first step. The first step in many ways, the first step. And really, it's the first word, and it's the one word that I want you to keep in your mind at the end of this sermon. And that word is go. Go. How are we to be makers up? Go, says Jesus. Go. Take the first step. No matter whose fault it is, that is not the issue, implies Jesus. You, as my followers, just as God did with us, we are to take the first step. No matter who is to blame, the ball is always in our court. Go. Even when we think we've done nothing wrong. Someone else has done something wrong. Go, says Jesus. Listen again. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, says Jesus, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. And only then, come offer your gift. How important is this to Jesus? More important than worship. That you be a maker-up, not a breaker-up in your relationships with others. More important than worship. Every Sunday when we gather together, we should be saying to ourselves, Lord, what relationship? Can I be a healer in, a maker up in, which is not as it ought to be? Worship should trigger that thought every time we come together. Go, says Jesus. Hard as it is, we need to take the first step. And this go is echoed by Jesus elsewhere, outside the Sermon on the Mount, in the verse that I read at the beginning of the sermon in chapter 18, where Jesus points to an occasion this time, not when it's your fault, but when someone else may be at fault, very clearly, someone else at fault. If another member of your church sins against you, what does Jesus say? He says it again. Go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Now, that's interesting. Go and do it when the two of you are alone, in person. No public embarrassment. No shaming. No defense. No games, no evasion, no manipulation, but a one-on-one -on -one conversation to sort things out where your eyes can meet, where your gestures are seen, where the tone of your voice can be heard, to reconcile, to bring people back together. Making up is hard to do. Breaking up is easy, but making up is hard to do. It can be done on social media. But it's very hard, and the principles that Jesus speaks about would say to me that even if that's a first step, no, no, it has to end up in real human contact. Just as the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is real human contact in flesh and blood with us, it has to end up in that kind of a way. On social media, there's no personal contact, no eye contact, no body language or gestures that can be felt, no tone of voice. Well, you could have some tone of voice there, but it's not quite the same as when you connect it to body language. No hug, no embrace, 
no ability to show that you're really listening. Maybe a step, but not enough. Go, says Jesus. Take the first step, whether we perceive it to be our fault or not. Let me end with a couple of stories which I hope will bring some of this together. The first is personal. The second is from a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, a black attorney working uh, with those who are incarcerated uh, based in Montgomery, Alabama. So the personal story, it's about an occasion when I was in a church and somebody was mad with me in this church for an event that I had planned and I'd happened to do it without checking the calendar and it was at the same moment as an event that somebody else had planned and it was very clear that the event I planned was going to uh, take away people from this other event. And this person had worked very hard at this event but it was too late to change the schedule and their event was effectively ruined and I did it. Didn't mean to do it. Wanted to say that I really didn't mean to do it. I really didn't mean to do it. How easily that comes out of us. That is easy to say. I didn't mean to do it. But this person was legitimately upset with me. And I knew that I had to go, following Jesus' statement, I had to go and apologize. And I actually went to this person's home to do this. And I sat there, and for about an hour, I was pretty much berated by this uh, person. And there was no real reconciliation at the end. And I could have left there saying, you know, that was a waste of time, Jesus. I don't know why I went there, because I suffered a little bit while I was there. But nothing much changed. But actually, that's not what I said, and that's not what I say to this day. In fact, what I wish I'd done was to stay longer and listen better and tease out what was really going on in this person's life, who was mad at me and may even still be mad at me to this very day. What was going on in their life, as I found out, perhaps some weeks, and it could have been even some months later, was that their life was falling apart that this person and their spouse had teenagers, and one of the teenagers was wrecking cars, destroying things left, right, and center, and their life was a danger, and this was one of the worst moments in their life as a parent, and I happened to be the tip of the iceberg. What I did was bad, but it wasn't the only thing that was going on. And if all of that had come out, then I think there really might have been some healing at that point. But there was stuff going on that there is no question, no question, without personal contact would never have come out. It doesn't always work. It's not always a quick fix. That's not Jesus' promise. But we are to go because there's nothing else that will substitute for that. Second story that I want us to hear about is a story in which something did in fact happen. The book Just Mercy is a book that I've recommended to many of you before by Brian Stevenson. There's a movie out about it as well. And this particular incident that I want to mention really doesn't come out in the movie as it does in the book. Brian Stevenson, as I mentioned, is a black attorney based in Montgomery, Alabama. On one occasion, he was visiting a prison as an attorney, and the white correctional officer at this particular prison was new. They'd never met before, and he was not a welcoming presence. He told Stevenson that he had to be strip-searched completely for security purposes before entering the prison. This was contrary to all standard procedures for an attorney-client visit. It was humiliating, and it was on purpose. But Stevenson humbly complied. 
he knew there was one thing that had to be done, and that was for him to see his client, a man by the name of Avery Jenkins. Jenkins had stabbed a person to death. There was no question about that. He had stabbed a person to death. But it happened during what Stevenson believed was a psychotic moment. This man had a terrible past. His father had been murdered before he was born. His mother died of a drug overdose when he was two. He was shuffled from one foster home to another, frequently locked in closets as a child. And the stabbing, as Stevenson had found out, had clearly occurred in a moment when everything, all his mental illnesses on top of everything else, were coming to a head. But at his trial, there was no mention whatsoever of mental illness. So Stevenson was looking for mitigation, for a changing in the sentence of this person who had done something wrong, and for a new hearing to have the case heard. Wanted sentencing, this time with medical care. The good news was that after this visit to the prison, that uh, new hearing was soon granted. And when it happened, something remarkable happened as well. The correctional officer accompanying Avery Jenkins to the hearing was the same correctional officer who had humiliated Stevenson when he tried to visit the prison the first time. And then the hearing occurred, and it lasted for some days, and the correctional officer had to sit through it all and listen as the story about Jenkins' life was told again, and he heard every step of it. And he began to realize that his story and Jenkins' story were not that far apart. When Stevenson went again to the jail, after, in fact, Jenkins' sentence had been mitigated, he was given uh, the mental health treatment that he needed. When Stevenson went to the jail again, this officer, this correction officer, who was again there as the person, the first guard that he would meet, was a new man. Stevenson says everything about his tone and demeanor was different. No strip search, no search at all. I was confused, he writes, by the shift in his attitude. I thanked him and walked to the visitation room door with the officer following behind. He turned to unlock the padlock so that I could go inside. As I started to walk past him to enter, he placed his hand on my shoulder, his touch, and said, um, I'd like to tell you something. And Stevenson says, I wasn't sure where he was going with this at all. You know, said the man, I took old Avery to court for his hearing and was down there with all of you for those three days. And I, well, I want you to know I was listening. He removed his hand from my shoulder and looked past me as if staring at something behind me. You know, he said, well, I appreciate what you're doing. I really do. It was kind of difficult for me in that courtroom to hear what you were all talking about. I came up in foster care myself, you know. I came up in foster care too. His face softened. Man, I didn't think anybody had it as hard or as bad as me. They moved me around as if I, I wasn't wanted anywhere. I had it pretty rough. But listening to what you were saying about Avery made me realize that there were other people who had it just as bad as I did. I guess even worse. I mean, it brought back a lot of, lot of memories sitting in that courtroom. It was then, says Stevenson, that I noticed for the first time that he had a Confederate flag tattooed on his arm. He went on, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it's good what you're doing. I got so angry coming up that there were plenty of times when I really wanted to hurt somebody just because I was angry. 
I could have done that too. He continued, that expert doctor you put up, he said that some of the damage that's done to kids in these abusive homes is permanent. That kind of made me worry. You think that's true? To which Stevenson replied, oh, I think we can always do better. The bad things that happen to us don't define us. It's just important sometimes that people understand where we're coming from. It's just important sometimes that people understand where we're coming from. And in a few moments that followed that conversation, a true miracle took place. The two of them were laughing together. This black attorney and this man with a Confederate flag tattooed to his arm, they were laughing together, one-on-one, -on -one, in person. I've always thought what courage Brian Stevenson had to go into the ministry, and for him it's a ministry, a legal ministry in the prisons, to go into those prisons to be a maker-up and not a breaker-up. And what courage, too, for this guard to go to Stevenson and to bear his soul to open up as he had probably never done to anyone in his life before and apologize in the only way that he knew how. Not always a quick fix, but the right move the God move, the Jesus move towards us, towards all of us, not letting who's to blame get in the way, but always being the one to go as Christ came to us. Go, says Jesus, go. That's what he says. That's what he did for us. That's what he says we are to do as well. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bow before you and thank you that you came to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your birth was costly, your death more costly. Help us to count the cost, to seek your guidance and your power, to be makers up more than breakers up. In your name we pray. Amen.